Well, we have uh, sung songs of praise regarding the resurrection. We now turn to John chapter 20. Join me there in your Bibles, John chapter 20, where we will be looking specifically at verses 1 through 18 this morning. John 20, verses 1 through 18. As John begins to unpack one of the pillars of the Christian faith, which is the resurrection of Jesus, John giving us in chapters 20 and 21, not only the historical evidence that Jesus did indeed conquer death, but also the many implications of what that grand event means for all who are his. Last week, we looked at the resurrection of Christ from a theological perspective, and we answered the question, what did the resurrection accomplish? What did the resurrection accomplish? And we noted the doctrinal significance and the theological necessity of the empty tomb. We saw how the resurrection confirmed Jesus to be the death conqueror promised in the Old Testament and the Son of God he claimed to be and the Lord over the church which he bought with his own blood. We also saw how the resurrection proved that Jesus' sacrifice had been accepted by his father, what we just sung. We saw also how the resurrection paved the way for Christ's continual intercession he now offers on our behalf as he sits at his father's right hand. This is the very reason our faith endures until the end. Christ is praying us into glory could have added blessings, but these are blessings upon blessings for all who are Christ's. But remember how we ended last week, not in blessing, but in judgment, looking at how the resurrection is also a warning to every unbeliever, and the warning is this, there is a fixed and coming day when the resurrected son will return, not in the saving humility of his first coming, but in the judgment glory of his second coming. When he returns, he will pour out righteous vengeance and holy wrath against all who have rejected him, the resurrected one, and his gospel. We saw that back in Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31. And thus, our conclusion last week was this. For the believer, for the believer, the resurrection of Christ is the foundation of our hope and it is the source of our joy. But for the unbeliever, the resurrection of Jesus is and should be the most terrifying event that has occurred to this day because of the coming and certain judgment it promises. And so based on that warning, it should come as no surprise that the unbelieving world has tried to ease their own conscience by discrediting the resurrection of Jesus in any way they can. And if you look at the statistics, you can see that those who deny the resurrection is growing at a fast rate. You've heard the theories. Every Easter, they seem to make the rounds. It's always on some magazine at the grocery store. The theories of the resurrection, each trying to undermine the very pillar of the Christian faith. 
There's the wrong tomb theory. The idea that Jesus' followers were mistaken about the location where Nicodemus and Joseph laid Jesus. And so unbeknownst to them, they went to a different tomb, an empty tomb, and thus concluded wrongly that Jesus had risen from the dead. It's a strange theory, since it seems that Joseph and Nicodemus could have and would have corrected the error. There's the swoon theory. The idea that Jesus, though crucified and though speared, did not actually die. He only looked like he was dead. Brings my mind back to a popular soap opera in the mid-90s. Don't ask me how I know that. <laughs> but the theory goes like this. Because of the tomb's coolness, coupled with the spices placed on Jesus, a day of recovery... Jesus was able to gather all the strength necessary to walk out of the tomb. This is a resuscitation, not a resurrection. There's the stolen body theory. Either that grave robbers stole Jesus' body, never to be seen again, or that Jesus' own followers took Jesus' body and then propagated this resurrection lie. In fact, that was the religious leader's explanation, even though they knew it was untrue. They were bribing those to follow through with this. It's their creation to discredit the empty tomb. It's in Matthew 28. There's the impersonation theory that the man who appeared to the apostles was not Jesus at all, just someone who claimed and looked to be like Jesus. There's the hallucination theory that each of Jesus' appearance were only figments of people's imagination. There's a spiritual resurrection theory that though Jesus' body remained dead, his spirit, spirit only, resurrected. Each of those theories borders on the bizarre to the ludicrous to the fanciful. If you actually read the resurrection accounts. And yet each theory is meant to ease, ease the unbeliever's conscience by undermining the exclusivity of Christianity. If Jesus died and doesn't, didn't resurrect, he's like every other person. Each theory is trying to ease the unbeliever's conscience by calling into question Jesus' resurrection claims, denying the inerrancy of the gospel accounts. Because if you can explain away the resurrected Jesus, if you can explain away the resurrected Christ, then you can calm any fear you might have of a resurrected and returning judge. Reject the history to escape the theology. That's the idea. And so John, understanding all the theological implications of Jesus' resurrection, everything we looked at last week, understanding its necessity to saving faith and eternal life. In fact, look at John 20, verse 31, the end of the chapter. Good summary. These things have been written, including the eyewitness testimony of the empty tomb, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's the empty tomb that confirms Jesus' identity, his sonship. 
his kingship, his deity. And that believing in the resurrected Christ, you may have life. Only a living savior gives life. That you may have life in his name. That is just a rehash of Paul's very dogmatic statement in Romans 10. Salvation is only granted, this is exclusivity. Salvation is only granted to those who confess Jesus as Lord. Well, isn't that what we see in John 20, 28? Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God, how do you confess Jesus as Lord? Romans 10 says you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So John knows that the resurrection of Jesus is the heart and soul of the Christian faith. But he also knows the tendency of the unbeliever to explain the resurrection away. He experienced firsthand with the Pharisees who propagate a lie. And so what John does here in, verse, in chapter 20 is he records a series of undeniable evidences, far more than any other of the three gospels, undeniable evidences that confirm this chief article of the Christian faith. Let's read through verse 18, set our minds. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. 
Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he said these things to her. You can stop there. We'll work our way through the text this way. We'll bring other gospels into play when appropriate. Here are nine evidences, eyewitness evidences that Jesus physically rose again from the dead. Nine evidences against all the wrong theories out there. Nine evidences that Christianity is indeed the exclusive and only true gospel. Nine evidences that your faith If it's in Christ, your faith and your hope and your future and your joy is not in vain. We'll look at the first four evidences this morning. Begin with evidence number one. Evidence number one. Jesus' followers knew the tomb where Jesus was buried. Jesus' followers knew the tomb where Jesus was buried. There's no confusion in their mind of where Jesus was left. They did not go to a wrong or different tomb. So notice verse one. Now on the first day of the week, here's the timing of everything that follows. This is Sunday morning. It's a historical detail that each of the four gospels record. This is important. Because this confirms, the timing confirms Jesus' own predictions of his resurrection. Remember, Jesus promised to rise again, Mark 9, three days later. Matthew 12, three days after three days and three nights. Matthew 16, on the third day. Each of those phrases refers to the same day, just said differently. And because the Jews counted any part of one day, any part of one day as a day, and because Jesus died on Friday, then in order for Jesus' words to be true, he must rise on Sunday. He must rise on the first day of the week. Well, that's what John records here. It's what every other gospel records as well. Now, normally a seven-day mourning period would be observed for death of a loved one. But in the case of Jesus, you can continue the verse here. Mary Magdalene came early on Sunday morning to the tomb while it was still dark. She came as soon as she could, as soon as the Sabbath ended, as soon as those Pharisaic Sabbath travel restrictions were lifted. And why did she come to the tomb? Because she expected Jesus's body to be there. That's her expectation. That's clear from verse three. She tries to make sense of Jesus's body not being there. It's clear from verse 15, what she tells the gardener. If you've carried him away, I'm expecting to find the body here. Again, it's a key point why Mary was not expecting to find an empty tomb. She was not expecting a resurrection from the dead, even though Jesus had promised that. Look at verse nine. For as yet they, 
certainly Peter and John, you can bring Mary into this. They did not understand the scripture yet. The spirit had not been given to open up their eyes to see the prophecies in the Old Testament. And so she comes to the tomb early because of her devotion to Christ. Remember, Jesus delivered her from seven demons back in Luke 7. And because Joseph, she also comes because Joseph and Nicodemus, practically speaking, they probably had to rush the burial preparation. They had to get Jesus into the tomb before the Sabbath begins. Probably a rushing took place. This is what Mark seems to indicate, Mark 16. And when the Sabbath was over, again, same timing, Sabbath over, first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, John focuses only on Mary. He sets the stage for Jesus' appearance to her. But Mark records two other women who are there. They all come to the tomb with what? Spices that they might come and anoint him, finish the burial procedure. But notice the way John records Jesus' tomb in verse one. Notice. He calls it the tomb. The tomb. It's not a tomb. This is a very specific tomb John has in mind. This is a specific use of the article. This is the use of the article, the, to individualize something, to point out, point to something that has been mentioned before. So Mary is not coming to merely a tomb. She comes to the Tomb, the same tomb mentioned at the end of chapter 19. Look at verse 42. The tomb, again, the article, the tomb where Joseph and Nicodemus laid Jesus. Look at verse 41. What tomb? This was a new tomb where no one had yet been laid. And notice in verse 41, it's a new tomb. Not the new tomb, but a new tomb. Why? It's the first time that tomb is mentioned. But now, every other time John refers back to this tomb, it's always the tomb. There's no confusion here. Notice the end of verse 1. The stone had been taken away from the tomb, the same tomb where Jesus was laid. Verse 2, Mary tells Peter, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. You already mentioned tomb. Verse three, Peter and John run to the tomb, the right tomb. Verse four, they came to the tomb. Verse six, Peter entered the tomb. Verse eight, the tomb. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb. There's no confusion here in John's mind. It's almost as if John knows what the skeptics might claim. And so he leaves no doubt the same tomb where John 19 ended is the same tomb where the events of John 20 take place. So you can cross that first theory off the list. The wrong tomb theory doesn't work when you read the gospel accounts. This is the first evidence of Jesus' resurrection. There's no confusion. There's no wrong tomb. Jesus' followers knew the tomb where Jesus was buried. This leads to evidence number two. Evidence number two. The death stone was miraculously removed. The death stone was miraculously 
removed. Continue verse 1. The first thing Mary sees as she approaches and now the light begins to dawn, the first thing she sees is the stone already taken away from the tomb. So picture the scene. This was an expensive tomb. And expensive tombs were normally cut into a rock bed, made a kind of cave. And in order to prevent grave robbers or animals, for that matter, from entering, a large, heavy, disc-shaped stone would be rolled in front of the entrance in order to seal it shut. Matthew 27 calls this particular stone a large stone. Mark calls it extremely large. In fact, in one manuscript of Mark 16, there's a side note in the margins. It's kind of like a study note put there. And the note reads this, a stone which 20 men could not roll away. It's an extremely large stone. To give you an idea of stone being described here, two Georgia Tech faculty engineers have actually taken this type of stone that was used during first century. They calculated the size of what it must be if it was to cover a four to five foot doorway. And they determined that at minimum, at minimum, the stone would have weighed between one and a half and two tons. Right, so that's the minimum. That is impossible for a single person or even a small group to move. In fact, one apocryphal account says that this stone was set in place by a lead centurion with his soldiers. So the strongest men of the day. It's locking the person in, but locking people out. But this stone had two other locking features attached to it. The first was a Roman seal, a warning that if anyone tampered with this tomb, it would be deemed treason against the state. It's Matthew 27. They set a seal, a wax stamp on the stone. The second protective feature was a group of guards stationed in front of the tomb. Now, why these guards? This is not normal. Why these guards? Why? Because in fear, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate. And they said, sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I am to rise again. Therefore, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal away, steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. And the last deception will be worse than the first. And so, verse 65, Pilate said to them, you have a guard, not one guard, a group of guards. Go and make it as secure as you know how. They want this tomb secure. So there's a sealed tomb there's a wax warning, and there are guards making sure no one enters. But when Mary arrives in John 20, verse 1, when Mary arrives, the guards are gone, the seal is broken, and the stone has been moved. 
we have to ask the question, how? How can this be? What happened? Well, we're given a clue in the verb taken away, taken away in verse one. For one, this is a passive verb. In this case, it's what's called a divine passive. It means that God, not some robber or some follower, but God had moved this stone. But second, the verb here taken away is not the verb we would expect to be used here. This verb means to take up or even literally to lift up. It does not mean to roll away. Now let's compare this account to Matthew. Matthew and Mark. Matthew writes this, that the stone was rolled against the entrance. Rolled against the entrance. Different verb. But when the stone was moved, according to John, it was not rolled away. It was lifted away. It was taken out of the grooved channel. In fact, this may even imply a violent removal. And we'll get somewhat technical. Third observation here. John uses what is called the perfect tense of the verb. It's always used in a deliberate choice when it is used on the part of the writer. Well, one commentator says this, the perfect tense indicates that there's an air of finality here to the moving of this stone. The stone is moved, lifted, taken up, never to seal Jesus again. So something supernatural has taken place, something supernatural to not only lift the stone off its track, again, minimum two tons, but also to chase the guards away. Where are the guards? Well, what's the supernatural act? Listen to Matthew 28. Matthew says, behold, a severe, violent earthquake. This is localized to this tomb area had occurred. Why? Why? For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven. That's why the stone's been moved. That's why the guards fled. The angel of the Lord descended from heaven. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. So they faint in fright. Earlier in John, remember when Jesus says, I am, they fall to ground. But now here, what happens? They faint in, in fright. And then when they come to, they flee, flee for their lives. Why? Because they fear the wrath of this angel, the wrath of God, far more than the wrath of the chief priest or pilot. And so if you're keeping track here, you can cross off the grave robber theory. That doesn't work. And note here, the angel did not dispose of the stone to let Jesus out of the tomb. That's not what's taking place. The angel lifts the stone, takes it away to let eyewitnesses into the tomb to see that no one's there. That's what we see in verses three through eight. So here's evidence number two. Evidence number two, that Jesus did indeed rise again from the dead. The death stone was miraculously removed. Leads into evidence number three. Evidence number three, Jesus' followers were too rational, 
too rational to imagine a hallucinated Jesus. They are too rational to imagine a hallucinated Jesus. Mary is trying to make sense of what she has seen. She's trying to piece it all together. This is not what she expected to happen. Luke tells us that Mary and the other women entered the tomb now. They entered the tomb. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And so saddened and fearful, notice verse two, she ran with the other women. She ran and came to Simon Peter. Who else is she going to go see? She comes to the leader of the group. She goes to Simon Peter and told him about the empty tomb. And then with Peter, they both go now and find the other disciple whom Jesus loved. That's the gospel writer, John, here. And the only explanation she can come up with is this. They, they, most likely referring to the religious leaders. She's not referring to mere grave robbers, but to the religious leaders, the only group other than the soldiers, the only group who would have had access to the tomb. And she conjectures this. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. It's the only explanation. And so note here, Mary is not thinking that Jesus walked out of the tomb on his own. That's not an option. She knows the scourging Jesus endured. She knows the brutality of crucifixion. She knows he's been speared in the side. So cross off the crazy swoon theory idea. And she is not thinking in terms of a resurrection either. And that's the furthest thing from her mind. And the reason why that is key is because when Jesus appears to her in verse 15, when Jesus appears and he says to her, Mary, that can't be a hallucination. Can't be a hallucination. Cross that off the list. Why? because she is not some highly imaginative follower. She's not working herself into a state to see something that's not really there. She's too logical for that, too rational here. Hallucination does not fit the scene. In fact, hallucinations do not fit the evidence at all. Jesus will later appear to 500 people at the same time. That's not how hallucinations work. The only explanation that makes sense to Mary is that Jesus's dead body has been taken. It's her explanation. And so she tells Peter and John, verse two, we, referring to the other women, not mentioned in John, but mentioned in the other gospels, we, all the gospels harmonize here. We do not know where they have laid him. In her mind, the most logical solution was that the religious leaders who worked so hard to secure Jesus's crucifixion, in their anger and their jealousy, they have now desecrated his body further. One commentator put it this way, the contemporary thought that they, Jesus's followers, could create a resurrection hoax or experience an encounter with some mystical Christ, a hallucination, 
as some have suggested, it is absurd, given their defeatism and enveloped Jesus' followers after they realized Jesus was truly dead. They're not thinking of resurrection or resuscitation. In fact, notice verse three. Peter and John, they don't respond to Mary by saying, Mary, don't you remember what Jesus promised? He said he would rise again from the dead. Don't you remember that? Instead, Peter and the other disciple, they waste no time and they went forth. They went forth and they were going to the tomb. And the implication here is that they leave Mary behind. She reports this to them and they say, thank you, Mary. And then they just, they just run. Leave her behind. We don't see her again until verse 11. And in verse 11, it's after Peter and John leave the tomb. It's just they make a beeline for the tomb. They don't know what's going on either. Evidence number three, Jesus' followers were too rational to imagine a hallucinated Jesus. Which leads into evidence number four. Evidence number four. The tomb was found empty by three witnesses. The tomb was found empty by three witnesses. So remember Deuteronomy 19. A single witness shall not rise up on the evidence of two or three witnesses. A matter shall be confirmed. It's Old Testament law. That's the precedence here. Well, that's exactly what John gives us. This is by design now in his writing. Exactly what John gives us. Mary's testimony that the grave was empty was not enough to confirm its truthfulness. That's one witness, at least in John's account, one witness. But with Peter and John now going to the tomb, that makes three witnesses. Now confirms Deuteronomy, fulfills Deuteronomy 19. And the historical eyewitness details should not be missed here. Verse four. The two were running together and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. That's a vivid touch. But John is not recording this to tell us that he could run faster than Peter. Okay, now maybe he had some fun, fun with it. Maybe he wants us to know that. That's not the point. We know that. It's a small detail. It's by design. The small detail, why? Why is it included? It's because it shows that there was no tampering of the evidence. There's no tampering of the evidence that there were three distinct witnesses to the empty tomb. So Mary was the first. She's the grieving witness. And now we have John, verse four, continue it. He stoops down, he crouches down, seeing the open door. And looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Here's the cautious witness. The cautious witness. He hesitates. He doesn't go inside the tomb. We don't know why John does not enter. Maybe he fears ceremonial defilement, maybe. Maybe there's a respect for the dead here, maybe. 
Maybe because there's no reason for him to enter the tomb. It's obvious to him. He sees that Jesus is not there. He could see the empty grave clothes lying on that stone shelf where the body should be found. Whatever the reason, whatever the reason, John's hesitancy confirms this. He did not disturb the tomb in any way. He did not reposition the clothes in some manner. He did not alter the scene before Peter got there. The tomb is exactly how it was when, notice verse 6, Simon Peter arrived. And true to form, Peter immediately enters the tomb. So here's the impulsive witness. You have the grieving witness, the hesitant witness, now the impulsive witness. He immediately enters the tomb and notice the verb, and he saw. He saw, the verb here refers to a careful, attentive observation. Peter's up close and personal, not, not with the body of Jesus, but with the linen wrappings lying there. The empty tomb must be explained somehow. Must be explained somehow. I love how one author puts it. If Jesus had been laid in the tomb on Friday and was not there on Sunday, either he was removed or he came forth by his own power. There is no alternative. No alternative. Was he removed? By whom? By friends or by enemies? The latter had set a squad of soldiers to guard him. Therefore, they had no intention of causing him to disappear. They don't take him. This would have made the way too easy for stories of the resurrection, which the disciples might invent. The wisest course was for them to guard him as proof. Thus, they could reply to every pretension that he might arise. Here is the corpse. He's not risen. Here's the dead body. As for Jesus' friends, they had neither the intention nor the power to remove him. The empty tomb must be explained somehow. Let's put it another way. The empty tomb was either a divine work or a human one. No difficulty presents itself, however, when the decision has to be made between such as these. The enemies of Jesus had no motive for removing the body. The friends of Jesus had no power to do so. It would have been to the advantage of the authorities that the body should remain where it was. And the view that the disciples stole the body is impossible. The power that removed the body of the Savior from the tomb must therefore have been divine. Again, the empty tomb must be explained somehow. So the only two explanations, it's a human act, it's logically ludicrous, or it is a divine work. And that is exactly what the four gospels record and three witnesses observe. Leads into evidence number five. We're going to pick it up here next time. Evidence number five 
Jesus' grave clothes were left behind. Jesus' grave clothes were left behind. But understand this. Theology is always based on history. Remove the history, no theology. And our future hope, our future hope, our joy, gospel promises of a coming resurrection from the dead that is not wishful thinking. Faith is not wishful thinking. No, our future hope, the promise we cling to of a coming resurrection, our theology of Christ's resurrection, that is confirmed. It is confirmed to be true by historical fact. If you knock down the history, there's no theology, but this is eyewitness proof and evidence. Not only that Jesus rose again from the dead, but if you're in Christ, you too will be resurrected from the dead. Father, we are thankful that you have given us documentation that our faith in Christ is secure. Eyewitnesses that show us that our Savior lives. Indeed, we will be with him. Indeed, Jesus' words were true. There is coming a day when Jesus, through the sound of his voice, will resurrect all from the grave. For those who are his, it will be a time of joy. For those who have rejected him, it will be a time of punishment. Father, give us who are Christ joy in this truth. If there are any here that have rejected Christ, never come to the resurrected Jesus, let them heed this warning. Give them new hearts and eyes that see your glory in the face of your Son. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.